that extra time change gave everybody a little extra spring in their step this morning, I guess. Some of us gave us a little less spring in our step, uh, myself included. So we're gonna do our best this morning. Do I need to be back a little bit? Am I too echoey right there? All right. All right. Well, thank you guys so much for the invitation and the chance just to come to spend the morning with y'all. Thank you for the opportunity to worship the Lord and Savior of all of us this morning. Uh, thank you for the chance to be here, back with so many faces that we know, some that we don't know, some that we look forward to getting to know. Um, and again, just we count this as a high privilege, I count this as a high privilege to uh, be asked to share the, uh, from Scripture this morning with you. So why don't we open with a word of prayer, and then we will dive into Ephesians this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Uh, it is a privilege to be called your sons and daughters. It is a privilege, Lord, to have breath in our lungs, to look outside and see the sun shining, reminding us that your faithfulness never ends. Through seasons of want and through seasons of plenty, through the times where it's hard to hear from you and the times where you speak very clearly to us. God, we thank you that you never fail. You never leave us on our own. You never forsake us. And God, most of all, you love us more deeply than we could ever hope or think or imagine. And Jesus, this morning, we just pray that your voice would be the loudest voice in this room. God, as uh, the things you've laid on my heart, um, God, would they be your words and not mine? Lord, would they be from you this morning? Father, where we're tired, where we're uh, wound up in the chaos and busyness of life from the week, Lord, would you help us to set that aside for the next half hour or so? God, help us to focus our hearts and our minds and our attentions on you this morning. And Jesus, we thank you for your word, the source of life, the source of knowledge about you. Thank you that we uh, have the privilege here to freely worship and openly seek you. God, stir our hearts this morning where we need to be stirred. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, again, my name is Phil Benner. I'm the assistant director over at Three Springs, which is a new and very surreal position for me to be in. Uh, I grew up down in Morris, grew up coming uh, with many of you when there was much less gray hair uh, on some of you. Um, and so it is, it is a privilege to be back in the area. Uh, our journey with the Lord has taken us all over the place uh, to places that my wife Michelle and I never expected. Uh, to Chicago, and then back here to Wellsboro for a couple of years, and then back to Chicago uh, to plant some churches, and now back to Three Springs. And so um, it is amazing the way that God works and the way that he uh, gives us seasons for when we need seasons. And uh, I'm just excited to be back in this area again. And, and again, like I said, just so thankful for the privilege to, to share a little bit with you this morning. So... Um, I'm assuming you've been going through Ephesians. I don't pretend to know all of you. I don't pretend to be a regular speaker at this church, so I'm gonna do my best to pick up. Uh, we made the joke already this morning that, it, oh, actually we're teaching on Ephesians 6 this morning, not 5, and uh, Gary reminded me that um, maybe some of this will be rehashing, but uh, no, I, I'm excited. We're gonna be in Ephesians 5, 1 through 15 this morning. And uh, before we read the scripture, 
Uh, I just, a little reminder on what Ephesians is, and I'm sure every single person that's come up here while Randy's been away has probably done this, but just a little reminder of Ephesians. Uh, it's a letter from Paul to the church in Ephesus, although they're not exactly sure who specifically in Ephesus this letter was written to. It's kind of a, a general letter of encouragement. And what I love about this book, and I'm so thankful to be able to talk to you this morning on this passage, is that it's bookended on both sides with the concept of love. The book of Ephesus is a letter to remind the church who its first love was, to call it back to God, to remind us of why we worship and the seriousness of our worship. And so this morning, as we look into Ephesians 5, it's actually Paul, for the third time, talking to the church of believers and saying, this is what it's like to be a believer. This is what we are called to. This is how we should look and how we should act. Um, this morning, we're going to focus predominantly on verse 1 and 2 as we talk, but we'll cover some of the other stuff as we go. So uh, join me in reading. I know that this passage that's going to be up here on the screen is tiny. Um, I didn't realize how tiny it would be this morning when I was making slides at 4.30 in the morning. But uh, it is super, super small. So if you've got a Bible with you, I would highly recommend, unless you've got a binoculars with you, uh, reading from your Bible. Uh, this is the NIV version, because uh, quite frankly, I wasn't sure what you all used. So, uh, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 through 15. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But among you, there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be any obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a man is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. For the fruit of light consists of goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible. For it is light that makes everything visible. This is why it is said, wake up, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Be very careful, then, how you live, not as unwise, but as wise. May the Lord add to the reading of the scripture. Uh, this morning, I want to talk about a couple of different concepts. The first of which we find right off the bat in this passage is be imitators of God. If you guys can hit that next slide, perfect. Um, imitators, when it talks about that in the scripture, and by the way, if you have a newer NIV translation than this one I just read, it has a different phrase for imitators. It, it says effectively, be ones who are representatives of God. But I like the way that this older translation looks because it uses this word imitators, and I love it for one specific reason. This is it. Imitators are direct representations of the qualities and character of a person. 
read that again. A, an imitator is a direct representation of the qualities and the character of a person. Now, to be an imitator of God means that we need to know God. If we're going to directly represent him, we need to know what he looks like, right? And scripture is pretty clear. There's only one way for us to know who God is. And that is through the person of Jesus Christ, his son, who came and walked with us here on this earth. He taught us everything that there is to know about him. In fact, he's the only true and clear picture of God is Jesus Christ. I want to read you this quote by a guy named Brennan Manning. Uh, some of you might be familiar with his writing, uh, but he does a good job of reading this, and it, uh, this is the first half of it up there. Jesus alone reveals who God is. He is the source of all our information about transcendence and divinity. He cannot, we cannot deduce anything about Jesus from what we think we know about God. However, we must deduce everything about God from what we know about Jesus. Let that quote sink in for a second. We can't deduce anything about Jesus from what we think we know about God. But everything that we see in Jesus is true of God. Hang on to that for a second while I read the second half of this quote. This implies, and that's not going to be on the screen, uh, this implies that all of our prevailing images, all those things, those pictures that we have in our head about God, all those understandings of God must crumble in the earthquake of Jesus' self-disclosure. Trust means willingness to become absolutely empty of all the terrifying and all the comforting images of God that we have hold, held so that the gift of God in Jesus Christ may come to us on God's terms. If we're to be called to be imitators of God, we need to know who he is. The best picture of knowing who, Jesus, who God is is looking at Jesus. And the only way for us to do that is through scripture, right? We know all that we can about God via the scriptures that he's given us. In John 14, verses 9 through 10, Jesus himself says this, and I'll just read it. Jesus answered, he's talking to one of the disciples, he says, show us the Father. And Jesus answers him, do you not know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you for such a long time, anyone who has seen me, Jesus, has seen the Father. Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words that I say to you are not just my own. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his works. So this morning, we have a little bit of a challenge here. I think most of us, myself included, probably have a fairly erroneous, that's a big word which means not correct, view of who God really is. Give me some examples. When I say the word God, what do we think? You can be real honest, be real vulnerable, and I'll be real vulnerable about, back at you. If I say God, what's the first picture that say, hops in your mind? Power, I heard. What was the other one? Father. Okay, what else? Creator. Creator. What else? Love. What was that? Love. Love. Okay. Does anybody in their heart of hearts, and this is something I'm challenged with pretty often, see the hand from heaven kind of sticking down, pointing down? Yeah, some of us, if we're honest. How about some of us that are just waiting with the divine ruler to get smacked on the hand if we step out of line? Sometimes, right? 
all of our pictures of God, whether they're right, wrong, indifferent, are summed up best in the person of Jesus Christ. It's when we look at Jesus that we understand who the Father really is. I want to give you a couple of examples of that. Jesus says that he is that, um, but uh, hit that next slide for me, guys. Um, man, I am sorry that these are so small. I can see them. Can you guys see them at all from, like, the posts back? All right. We'll let Gary interpret for you. Um, <laughs> uh, the only way to imitate God is to know and follow Jesus Christ as his disciple. Disciples watch the master and copy what he does. You ever seen a fine woodworker? You might know one who's sitting on that side of the room right now. If somebody learns under them, if they apprentice under them, what do they do? They learn what the, what the fine woodworker, what the master does, and they copy, and they replicate, and they try, and they try again, and they try again, and they try again. That's what discipleship looks like. It's following the master one step after another after another. And slowly, over time, you begin to imitate that master. Now, if we're to be imitators of God, Jesus is the one we're following, right? Jesus is the one that we need to get to know. He's the one that we need to step in, in step with. One of the things that Jesus does, and this is what I love, love, love about God, is that he prioritizes people over projects. Hear that. Jesus prioritizes people over projects. He is not nearly as concerned with the final product as he is with the people that are involved. You know how I know that? There's a couple examples. Jesus, he's talking to this crowd of people, and you can look up these up later. I won't read it through all of them. Uh, this one in particular is in Mark. He's teaching this crowd of people, and people are coming to him with children and, and asking him to bless these kids. And he says, yeah, bring the children to me. And the disciples are like, yeah, but... Jesus, we have some priorities here. You're teaching all these other adults. You've got all this other stuff we need to get to. Dinner is in like two hours. We've got to get this thing rolling, right? But Jesus says, bring the children to me. Let's prioritize their faith because their faith is authentic. And it shows you as an example what it should look like. So that's one example. Second, second example is a parable he tells, the Good Samaritan. You guys are probably all familiar with that story, so I won't rehash the whole thing. But he says, you know, the guys that took the time to prioritize people are the ones that got it right. They figured out the kingdom. It's the Samaritan, the outcast, the loner, the one who should have been farthest from faith that got it right. He prioritized this man who was wounded on, this, on the road. Lastly, and this is the one we are going to look at, is the woman at the well. Join me, if you will. Jump over to John 4 real quick. I want to show you because I think this is such a beautiful example. If we're to imitate God, we need to understand who Jesus is. And to understand who Jesus is, is to follow and watch what he does. So listen to this. <clears throat> John 4, he's going around. Pharisees are starting to give him a hassle because... Jesus is getting more and more popular, and the Pharisees are like, we need to put a squelch on that thing before it gets out of control. Uh, so Jesus is like, well, um, yeah, we're going to take a little walk. A little walk is like 90 miles, by the way. 
um, which Jesus apparently did on a pretty regular basis. So, um, but uh, Jesus decides uh, after getting some flack from the Pharisees, uh, verse 3 of John 4, uh, when Jesus learned of this, he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Galilee. So he's walking from uh, Judea over toward Galilee. Um, now he had to go through Samaria. That's verse 4. Let me stop for a second. Jesus didn't have to go through Samaria. Are you guys familiar with this idea? Like, direct route, Samaria's in the middle. Most Jews would have gone around, right? This was out of their way. This was not on the scheduled path. In fact, there was a well-worn trail around Samaria that they could have taken. But Jesus had to go through Samaria because he has a divine appointment that he is on track for. So he came to the town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. Remember, he's walking a long ways. It was about the sixth hour, so around noon. When the Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had all gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it was that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Kind of missing the point. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and flocks and herds? And Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give will never thirst. Indeed, the water that I give will become in him a, a spring of water welling up for eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I don't have to get thirsty and have to keep coming to this well. She may have added an explicit verb in there uh, before to describe her well. Anyway, sorry, verse 16. He told her, go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say that you don't have a husband. In fact, the fact is, you've had five husbands, and the man that you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. And Jesus declared, Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit. And his worshipers must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said, I know that the Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then he declared, Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. The reason I read you that whole big passage is because I want to remind us that Jesus prioritizing is not the here to there. It's not linear necessarily. He's worried about stopping and conversing and caring for this woman. He doesn't just come in and say, listen, you Samaritan, with maybe an explicitive after that, that some of their uh, Jews of that time would have used. He took the time to care about this woman. He took the time to address the fact that she was a broken person who needed grace and needed love. 
Remember, the book of Ephesians, it's written to a church commending them to love again, to love God again. And Jesus displays that time and again, over and over. He says, will you love this God? Now, if you recall in other passages when, when he talks about this, he sends her away. And in other places, he talks about sending them away. And he says, okay, you've, you've done this thing. I understand that. Now be clean. But he also says, but go and sin no more. And I love that part of it um, in the other passages that he does this because it brings us to this next section. We see Jesus as loving, but we also see Jesus as the Holy One. Check out, so we've had this positive part in verse 1 and 2 where he says, live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering. Side note, which isn't on the slides. Living a life of love looks like exactly what we just saw Jesus doing. Taking the time to prioritize people over project is how we live a life of love. Doesn't mean we need to worry so much about getting that person to have all their theology right, but more about how do we love that person in the midst of where they're at. Jesus took the time to prioritize people as an act of love. But then verse 3 and the next couple verses here of our passage this morning in Ephesians, they take kind of a dramatic twist, kind of a dramatic turn. He talks about loving people and being imitators of God, and then all of a sudden, but among you, Paul addresses some very specific, very harsh, and if I want to be real personal, pretty darn challenging commands in there, doesn't he? He says, but among you, there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. So Paul goes from being imitators of God to immediately saying, in doing that, in following Jesus, in living a life of love, be careful. This is what this looks like as it practically plays out. Be careful that there's not even a hint of these things. Now, I love that, that phraseology because um, after high school, I, I had the opportunity to spend some time in Peru. And in Peru, we got to swim in the Amazon River. And uh, in the Amazon, other than it being absolutely horridly disgusting, uh, there are many, many things that want to eat you. Um, even more than like in our country where there's a lot of things that want to eat you, there's a lot of things in the Amazon River that would like to eat you. But our guides, as we jumped off of our house that was floating on the Amazon River, said, you have nothing to fear about as long as you're not bleeding. And I was like, oh, that's great. I've got no blood coming out of me. Uh, so at least I hope not. Uh, but they said, if there is even a hint of blood in the water, it's bad, bad, bad news. Everything comes running. So we're, this is totally tangential, and I apologize in advance. But um, we're jumping off this houseboat where there's 200 of us down there, and we're having a good, good old time. And this one girl comes up out of the water, and she had slipped in the mud and comes out and is kind of holding her leg, and she moves her hand, and there's a fish sticking out of her leg. Yay, big fish uh, with spines coming out of it all over the place because that's what lives in the Amazon River, and it's scary. Um, and the guides were like, Y'all, you need to get out now. Like, not even when you're ready, like, get out of the water. We're done. We're moving the boat kind of stuff. Because there had become a hint of blood in the water, and the piranhas were coming. 
is what they were saying. Uh, there will be piranhas. In fact, they chucked in a chicken just to show us. Um, <laughs> which did my heart happy. Um, <laughs> that was fun. Scary, but fun. But as long as there wasn't even a hint of blood in the water, it was totally fine. You could swim, you could play, we could make as much noise as we wanted to, but as soon as that switch flipped, the stuff that wanted to eat you was there. And I, I think that's a good kind of representation of what it's like when we think about this concept of the holiness of God. And this is where I want to camp out for the last couple of minutes we have, is this concept of God's holiness. Because what does it mean to be holy? Somebody give me a 30-second definition of holiness or a one-second definition of holiness? Set apart. Set apart. How much set apart? All the way set apart. Yeah, you can't be set apart like this much set apart or this much set apart. The concept is as far as the east is from the west, set apart. Exponentially set apart. Absolutely set apart. God's holiness is so pure that even our thoughts about it are already tainted. Check this out. I want to read you this quote. I had to email it to myself this morning to save my wife from printing it at 4.30 in the morning. Um, so I'll read it from my phone if you don't mind. But this is from a guy named A.W. Tozer. He writes these little tiny books that are about this big that take me about three years to read through. So I can only take Tozer in small doses. If any of you have read him, you'll understand why. Um, A.W. Tozer says this about the holiness of God. By the way, this hurts a little bit. So it uh, might hurt your brain, but probably hurts your heart too. Brain first. God is not now any holier than he ever was. He was never holier than he is now. He did not get his holiness from anyone or anywhere. He is himself the holiness. He is the all-holy, the holy one, the holiness itself, beyond the power of thought, beyond the grasp, or even beyond our words to express, beyond the power of all praise. Language cannot express the holy, so God resorts to an association and suggestion for us to understand it. He cannot say it outright because he would not be able to use the words which we can understand to have any meaning. He would have to translate it down to our unholiness. If he were to tell us how white he is, we would only understand it in terms of a dingy gray. It was a common thing in olden days when God was at the center of human worship to kneel at an altar and to shake and tremble and weep and perspire in agony and conviction. We don't see it now because the God we preach is not the everlasting, awful, mine holy one from Habakkuk 1.12, who is of purer eyes than can even behold evil and can look, cannot look on iniquity, Habakkuk 1.13. We've used the technical interpretation of justification by faith. Sorry, this is, I know this is heady, but hang with me. We've used that technical interpretation of justification by faith and the imputed righteousness of Christ until we've watered down the wine of our spirituality. God help us in this evil hour. We come into the presence of God with, toil, with tainted souls, 
We come with our own concept of morality, having learned it from books, from newspapers, from school. We come to God dirty. Our whitest white is dirty. Our churches are dirty. And our thoughts, dirty. We do nothing about it. If we came to God dirty, but trembling, shocked and awestruck at his presence, if we knelt at his feet and cried with Isaiah, I am undone because I am a man of unclean lips, then I could understand, but we skip into his awful presence. We're forgetting holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord, from Hebrews. Oh God, soon every person must appear before you and give account for the deeds done in the body. Father, keep us in a sense of holiness so that we can't sin and excuse it. But that repentance will be in deep in our lives. This we ask in Christ's name. Amen. I know that was thick and deep, but do we get the understanding of why even a hint is so dangerous? Even a hint, as the scripture says, of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or greed, of obscenity, of foolish talk, of coarse joking, any of that stuff is so, so dangerous because it detracts from us being imitators of God. That's the challenge, right? From verse 1, we are to be imitators of God. So if any of that is existing in us, and I'm as guilty as every other person in this room, guys. We're all sinners. So this is as much a heart check for me as it is for anybody else. But that's what the holiness of God looks like. Now, how do you match that with the grace and the mercy and the beauty of the love of Jesus Christ? Because that's where we find ourselves this morning. The imitators of God... Because God in Jesus Christ showed us everything that who he was. And yet understand that this God we serve is absolutely, unwaveringly holy and pure and blameless and spotless and righteous. How do we do that? We're called to live lives of love and to be children of light. So what does it mean to be a child of light? If we are walking as imitators of Christ, if we have learned from the master, copied what he's doing, and then take steps following him, that is how we live in this tension of holiness. It is true that if, if Jesus is our savior, that we are absolutely uncondemned before God because of Jesus' sacrifice for us. But it is also true by the conviction of scripture that we need to be real, real careful as we walk, don't we? We need to be people who love extravagantly but hold ourselves at high accord at the same time. Jesus should have never been with this Samaritan woman at the well. It says don't even have a hint of sexual immorality. There's more than a hint associated with that. Jesus could have been accused of all kinds of things, and yet he prioritized love. So we need to look to him as our example, knowing that we're also called to a very high calling of purity and other things. I would love to offer you a do this, this, and this. I was 
I was racking my brain the last week and a half to think of like, okay, here's our action steps, here's where we go with this, here's how we do these things. I got nothing for you. Other than the fact that the more we know Jesus, the closer we'll be able to walk as he walked. The more we'll be able to love as he loved. The more we'll be able to serve as light in darkness. I know you guys were probably in that passage last week where it talks about being children of light and understanding what it means to just walk with the Jesus Christ who not only created us, but then sacrificed to save us. That is who we are to be. For imitators of Jesus, we walk out there way more than we sit in here, don't we? If our spirituality is confined to these walls, we've got big problems. Because Jesus didn't exist in the church, he existed in the world to save the world, to love the world, to die for the world, so that in doing, some would know him. Because I'm really, really encouraged as I think and pray and watch this church grow and develop. Every time I drive by that building over there on the mountaintop, I pray for you guys. I pray for this congregation because I know that God is doing something incredible in our midst. He has you primed for something amazing. He is doing something amazing among you now. The fact that there's people sitting in these four walls right now is a testimony to the faithfulness of God. From Ben Walters and many that went along down the, down the chain. I mean, God has been faithful. So how do we run well with that? How do we love well with that? How do we care for people? How do we be imitators of God? Be very careful then, and I'll end with this on verse 15. Be very careful then how you live. Not as unwise, but as wise. I think that's our challenge this morning. Um, as we walk through this world where we've got every voice imaginable vying for our time, for our attention, for our talents and our treasures, how do we walk as people who are wise? And the only thing I can come up with is get to know Jesus more. Whatever that takes, whatever the cost, how do we get to know Jesus more? I have the privilege of, of spending time vocationally serving in ministry, and I have the privilege of watching a lot of different church groups come and go and hearing different voices, and, and even with the One Life involvement that I know you guys get to see a little glimmer of, like, it is incredible to watch God build his church. It's incredible, and it's a privilege to watch that happen. The church looks different in a lot of different ways in a lot of different seasons, but Jesus faithfully builds. And I think as we navigate this uncertain time, as we look at the, the chaos in the world and we look at the calling of Christ, the only thing we can do is keep going back to this and saying, Jesus, show us more. Jesus, mold us more. Jesus, teach us to walk, teach us to love, teach us to serve you better. That's my hope of encouragement this morning. I hope that... Um, as we press into this, Jesus reveals who God is more and more to you personally. I hope that we together, as the church, Big C Church, become more like Christ because that's how the world will know who he is. So let me pray for us as we wrap. And then I think Gary has a few more songs maybe. Heavenly Father, you are good to us. 
Um, Father, we have each individually wandered so far. And Lord, we repent. I repent of the times where I have seeked after other things, put other idols in the way of following you wholeheartedly, without distraction, without abandon. Jesus, it is so easy for us to lose sight of our first love. And so, God, I just, I personally repent. I repent on behalf of our churches. God, help us to understand your holiness. But help us also to understand how that is tempered in the beautiful picture of Jesus Christ. How when we understand who you are, Jesus, it changes everything. Lord, help us to walk out of the shadows and into the reality of the bright light of your son, Jesus Christ. Help us to love people well. Help us not to be focused on a church, but on the world that you love, that you died for, that you came for. Father, I thank you for Oregon Hill, for their faithfulness through the years. God, for their unending desire to pursue you. Lord, I pray that anything that was of me will just fade away. Anything that it was of you will stick. And Lord, we just thank you for even this time we've had this morning just to, to focus on your word a little bit. God, we give you the glory for anything good that comes out of this place or out of our lives because you alone are worthy of our worship and our praise and every bit of who we are. In your name we pray these things. We ask for your blessing. Amen.